Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we'll discuss selecting an asset protection plan, strategies, and pitfalls, featuring K. Eli Akavan, partner at the New York-based law firm Grant Herman Schwartz & Klinger. Today's show will cover the complex landscape of choosing the optimal jurisdiction for asset protection. The webinar will cover the factors to consider, such as legal protections, structuring opportunities, and tax implications. Real-world examples will be provided, showcasing how to evaluate jurisdictions effectively and to avoid legal and ethical pitfalls. The information will be particularly helpful for attorneys and accountants who represent clients in high-risk businesses. Today, we're privileged to hear from Eli Akavan, who's a partner at Grant Herman Schwartz & Klinger based in New York. Eli specializes in domestic and international tax and estate planning, where he counsels clients on domestic and international wealth structuring, including advising high net worth individuals, families, and family offices on their tax, wealth preservation, and estate planning needs. Eli has considerable experience in establishing domestic and foreign asset protection trusts, business succession planning, and charitable planning. Additionally, he specializes in advising cross-border clients on foreign trusts, pre-immigration and expatriation planning, and on planning for the purchase of U.S. residential and investment real property. Today, Eli will be speaking on selecting an asset protection plan, strategies, and pitfalls. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Eli. Thank you, Jonathan. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining. Uh, I hope it's going to be an informative session for everyone. Uh, we're going to be covering the generals of asset protection planning. Uh, and then we're going to dive a little bit into the nuances of how to select the right asset protection plan for your client. Uh, in the 30-minute span, there's only so much we can cover. I do invite you, uh, if you have any questions or um, points that you want, would like to discuss, you can uh, get my email um, from Jonathan or look me up on our website, and I'd be happy to discuss with you. Uh, Jonathan mentioned, uh, you know, the importance of asset protection. I wanted to delve into that a little bit. Uh, part of what I do, uh, my, my day today is in estate planning and in estate planning, what we try to implement and, uh, we strive for is to fulfill the objectives and intent of the client, uh, in a tax efficient manner and taking into consideration the tax laws as well as non-tax issues. Uh, part of our practice involves uh, protecting our, asset, uh, our clients' assets, not just from government, but from all types of predators and to ensure that the wealth that our clients have built up goes to the next generation without it being exposed to predators or to other types of predatory um, litigants out there. Uh, so why asset protection? Well, it's no secret uh, there's a pro proliferation of litigation out there, especially here in the United States. Uh, creditors can include um, family creditors, business creditors, 
uh, family members in business <laughs> together that you know doubles the chances of your creditors uh, as those are sometimes very tricky situations. Um, there could be piercing of the corporate veil where you have an individual that is ostensibly operating out of an entity, but is not really respecting that entity that they thought would protect them. Uh, so judges would pierce that corporate veil and hold the individual personally liable. Um, there are instances where even if you do operate out of a respected entity, uh, there's personal liability uh, under labor and employment laws. I can't tell you the countless clients that come to me um, who are on the management side and they're getting sued by uh, employees and, 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 and other um, labor representatives and there's personal liability there. Uh, if uh, in New York State, if sales taxes are not filed correctly in the business, there's personal liability. Activist judges, um, there are a lot of judges out there that uh, in interpreting the law and in rendering their judgments have a, an, an agenda um, and they'd like to implement that and they have theories of the law and they have understandings of the law uh, that are not necessarily debtor friendly. Um, many clients or most of our clients uh, that uh, we deal with, they have insurance coverage, they have umbrella insurance, they have business insurance, but there are always policy limitations. Uh, policy may cover certain types of uh, actions against the client, but not all. Um, so there are exclusions uh, on, on that, but there are also limitations and caps on the amounts of coverage, which would not be sufficient to cover an individual's personal liability. Toward creditors, uh, individual gets into a car accident, an individual's child, minor child takes a family car, gets into an accident and harms somebody else and causes damage. There's liability there. Um, now, the real goal of asset protection, and we'll get into this a little bit more, is that there's no uh, real, to understand asset protections, you have to understand that there's no bulletproof uh, structure you can put in. There's always exposure. But the goal of asset protection is to incentivize uh, settlement, to reduce the leverage of the potential litigant, and to come to a resolution prior to having to go through actual litigation. Um, I can tell you that having been on the advisory side on many of these litigations, it's expensive. It can go on for years. It's draining both in terms of time, in terms of resources, in terms of um, financial resources. It's, it's just not worth it. So what we try to do is set up the structure to remove and reduce the uh, incentives to actually litigate. And of course, um, part of asset protection involves tax and estate planning. When an individual is leaving assets to their children, they don't want it to go to a son-in-law or a daughter-in-law. They do it via trust. If they want to ensure that their um, a spendthrift child uh, is not going to um, uh, windle away at the family fortune, you use trust and other vehicles to make sure that happens. And that's all part of the estate planning that that um, that it's part of the client's uh, desires and goals. Now, when we think of asset protection, the way I like to think about it is that there is a spectrum. Okay. You have the basic asset protection that I call vanilla asset protection, and we can go all the way and get very sophisticated through, let's say, offshore asset protection trusts. So we have this wide spectrum, and everybody falls within that spectrum. The question is, what part of the spectrum 
does your client fall in and what type of plan should you be thinking of? Well, let's discuss some of the basics. I mean, we mentioned before, we alluded to it, there's umbrella insurance. There are statutory exemptions that you should look at for your clients. So um, IRAs, life insurance uh, policies, homestead, uh, these are um, assets that are protected um, under state or federal statute from creditors. Um, New York, for example, protects the owner and beneficiaries of a life insurance policy uh, from creditors. That's, um, that's a public policy decision to encourage purchases of life insurance. Homestead, uh, the most famous homestead that we know of is in Florida, unlimited homestead. You purchase a, a property in Florida, um, assuming it meets the homestead requirements, it's protected from creditors. Uh, what a lot of people don't know is that New York also has a homestead exemption, but it's actually quite limited. I think it's in almost um, between 150,000 to 200,000, depending on the county that you live in. Um, doesn't get you much in, in New York, but uh, just note that it also exists in, in New York. Business entities. Um, we all know that you have to, uh, you know, for everybody operating out a business, they need to be doing it out of an entity, an entity in order to limit their liability. Whether it's an LLC, a corporation, a limited partnership, each of those have to be examined from an, a tax perspective, but certainly there are asset protection features to entities as well. Irrevocable trusts, uh, you know, we, we deal with that day in, day out. For clients that are engaging in estate planning, we'll set up an irrevocable trust. They can transfer their assets to the trust. If it's designed properly and it has the requisite provisions, it could provide um, uh, significant asset protection for both the clients setting up the trust as well as the beneficiaries of the trust. Disclaimer planning. Uh, say an individual is about to inherit an asset or you know, a family member passed away, they're about to receive an asset, but they have creditors um, at bay. What do you do? Well, they could execute a, what's called a disclaimer in surrogate's court, in New York surrogate's court, and not receive the asset, and instead it goes to the person who would have received it had they not been alive. Um, that's another type of planning. Uh, joint ownership of property. Uh, you know, one, a, a question I get all the time is, husband and wife own a, a house together, um, tenants by the entirety, and um, one of the spouses gets sued. So let's say the, 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 the husband is getting sued and they ask me, is my house protected? Well, the, the short answer is in New York, if it's owned jointly um, between two spouses and only one spouse is a creditor here, the husband, the creditor cannot foreclose on the property. Uh, the limitation there is of course, if the wife passes away first and then it's in the husband's name, then they can foreclose um, and put a lien on the property. Um, segregation of liability, this goes back to the business entities. If you have an individual that has a business and that business, uh, uh, let's say it's, it's, it's a medical um, uh, company, physician's office or, or, or ski resort, uh, this example I like to use, the operating business and the real estate need to be segregated into different entities. You put them into one entity, the real estate is going to be exposed to the liability of, of the operating entity. You don't want that. And this is just, again, um, very vanilla, um, uh, basic asset protection planning. So when we move into more um, sophisticated planning, and I call it sophisticated with all the toppings um, as, as, your, as your choice, uh, we get into uh, 
more complex structures. And the more complex structures are really there um, for a variety of situations where the client um, can be in a more of a exposed, um, they may have uh, certain concerns about future potential creditors and they want to explore their options to be as more protected and shielded as possible. So what, what do we use there? Well, we can use domestic and foreign private placement life insurance policies. And I'll discuss a little bit at the end what that is. Uh, foreign annuities, um, domestic asset protection trusts. These are um, the big ones and foreign asset protection trusts. These type of vehicles offer a much more heightened uh, level of asset protection, creditor protection for a client than the plain vanilla planning. And of course, you can combine those with a foreign LLC. So you have an LLC that site is outside of the United States, and we'll discuss some of the jurisdictions um, in order to put your client in the best position uh, to protect their hard-earned wealth from, from future potential creditors and from um, predatory uh, uh, litigation. So what are some factors to consider in choosing the right asset protection structure for a client? Well, when we sit down with the client to discuss A, what their needs are, and B, what would make the most sense for them, these are a bunch of factors we look at. Again, you know, general exposure to litigation and claims, what profession are they in? Certain professions are more um, prone to litigation than others. Uh, general contractors, real estate professionals, physicians, um, being a fiduciary, being the executor of an estate, um, these are all, all have a bit more exposure to litigation and claims. Um, what is the degree of the exposure? Okay, so you know you're exposed, you know you may get sued, but at what amount and will there be insurance coverage? Uh, the first step I always say uh, is check with your insurance provider, see what you're covered for and what you're not covered for, and at what limit, what is there a cap on that? Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's the first uh, item. Um, and, uh, you know, the first thing I tell clients is that you need to understand that nothing is bulletproof. And I mentioned that, um, in the beginning of the presentation as well, but there's no plan that you can, um, in good faith, tell the client, this will never be attacked. This will never, um, you know, the client, uh, the creditor will never be able to get your assets. That's, you know, you can't say that. What you can tell the client is that we'll set you up and position you in a way where, the potential creditor is disincentivized to come after you and litigate this for years end. Um, instead, you know, let's come to a settlement and either let's pay something out or let's, you know, come to an understanding so that there's no, um, so that the potential creditor understands that there's no assets to come after. Um, there's no concealing or hiding of assets. Uh, you know, the, if the client is asking, oh, you know, well, will my can, can my spouse find out about this? Can this creditor find out about this? Our goal is not to hide or conceal assets. Our goal is that even if all these assets are later found, and even if the potential creditor knows about this asset protection structure we put into place and we implement, they're not able to reach it. And that's the best type of planning that's going to work. And then of course, I tell clients that once there is a claim against you, your options become very, very limited. Uh, there are fraudulent conveyance laws, fraudulent transfer laws. Um, recently, a whole host of states have adopted the Uniform Voidable Transactions Act. Um, these are all different ways, without getting into the legal nuances of it, but these are different ways of 
voiding or unwinding fraudulent transactions or transactions and transfers that were done in order to void and, and, and hinder and delay uh, current creditors. Now, when we're trying to protect from future potential creditors, that is a different story. Uh, you know, many people sometimes have perhaps a pejorative impression of asset protection planning, but I tell them, you set up LLCs, you set up corporations, those are all forms of asset protection planning. The moment you set up an LLC and you put a rental property or an operating business into an LLC, you are engaging in asset protection planning, not necessarily from current creditors, but from future potential creditors uh, that are not yet identified that may come into play in, 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 you know, in, the future, um, in the future, and we're trying to protect against them, and that's allowed. Uh, other types of um, uh, other considerations is for your client to understand is the more access you have to the assets, the lower to the protection, the lower the level of protection. Um, what clients need to know is that you know, the maximum asset protection is what you don't own can't be taken away from you. But if a judge finds that you have sufficient access and sufficient control over those assets that you put into a vehicle or into a structure, the judge may determine that you actually own the assets. And that's obviously going to reduce the efficacy of the asset protection plan. Um, comfort with complexity. Uh, you know, we, as lawyers, we, our, our goal is, in general, despite the legal jargon, to make things as simple for clients. But when engaging in an asset protection plan, there is a level of complexity. There are structures in place. Those structures may have reporting requirements, both tax and non-tax. Uh, there may be hoops to jump through to get assets to your children or to your intended beneficiaries. Uh, so that has to be a certain level of comfort with that um, before implementing the structure. So with that said, let's uh, think about and, and consider two, the two uh, types of asset protection structures that we see a lot of and that we help with our, our clients implement, um, again, uh, in, in, in advent of a future potential creditor. Um, first is domestic asset protection trusts. Uh, you know, I always say that pretty much any uh, irrevocable trust in, in the United States can be a domestic asset protection trust. It's domestic and it could serve asset protection uh, purposes. But when we talk about domestic asset protection trusts, we're really considering a trust in which the set law, the person who funds the trust, can also be a beneficiary of that same trust. And it began with Alaska and Delaware. They, they implemented laws um, that allowed these type of trusts where you were allowed to put an asset into a trust, remain a discretionary beneficiary of the trust up to a certain extent, and still have the assets in the trust be protected from your creditors under the state law. And clients love this, right? Because it essentially allows them uh, you know, to have the cake and eat it too, because they gave away their assets, uh, it's in a trust, it's in a structure, but if they needed access to it through an independent trustee, they can get, get a distribution of it. Um, currently, there are approximately 20 states that I'm aware of um, that have domestic asset protection trust features, uh, you know, ranging from Alabama all the way to Wyoming. Um, we'll discuss you know, which jurisdiction makes, would make the most sense 
for a client, um, but there's plenty of jurisdictions to choose from. Uh, the most um, uh, famous of them or the most applied are uh, Alaska, Delaware, Nevada, South Dakota, and Wyoming. Um, New Hampshire is becoming a bit popular uh, recently, but again, depending on what your client is looking for, there is certainly a smorgasbord of uh, jurisdictions to choose from in the domestic context. So what, what are we looking for when we are considering a domestic asset protection trust structure? Well, uh, first is the statute, I would say the most important consideration um, is the statute of limitations. So in general, if an individual, let's say, let's take New York, for example, if an individual transfers assets into a trust, and it was a fraudulent conveyance, meaning they're intending to delay, hinder, or avoid creditors. Um, the creditor has six years to challenge that and to unwind that. Okay, so that's a lot of time uh, from, the, from the time of the transfer. Um, many states have reduced that. So you look to a state, um, some states have made it four years, some states have made it two years. And the goal is to find a state that would make the most sense for the client. Um, exception creditors. Uh, there are certain states that prohibit um, protection from marital claims, alimony claims, child support claims. And if that's a claim that a client's concerned about, well, that's a discussion. Um, you know, do I want to move my funds uh, there? Um, does it make sense? Is there a public policy issue there? But those are. Um, you know, considerations to take into account. Then there's, of course, other considerations. There's whether a state or jurisdiction has directed trust legislation, which means that, take Delaware, they have directed trust um, um, statutes. So what happens there is that you have a trustee, an administrative trustee to make it into Delaware trust, but you have a distribution committee that tells, or a distribution advisor that tells the trustee what to do. So you want to make sure that state has that. Retain powers by the set law. Um, different states allow different levels of control by the set law over the assets. So you look at that. Um, notice the beneficiaries. Uh, most states have notice the beneficiary requirements in terms of what type of notice needs to be given, um, how often, and when. Um, and you want to make sure you're in a state that doesn't necessarily that have robust or, or strict requirements on that. Um, so these are just certain considerations. I should also point out trust flexibility. Um, the, you know, many times in order for this trust to work generally in these domestic asset protection trust jurisdictions, you're going to need um, flexibility. But at the same time, it has to be an irrevocable trust that you can't change it. Well, sometimes irrevocable doesn't really mean irrevocable. There are ways to modify trust um, without losing the irrevocable aspect of it. There's decanting, there's non-judicial settlement agreements that some states have um, that you can modify the trust and you wanna look at each state to see what would make the most sense um, for the client. Now, there are certain limitations uh, of a domestic asset protection trust um, that leads a client to want to consider a foreign asset protection trust. So what are those? Well, the number one concern is that it's U.S. CITES. At the end of the day, you're still in the United States. You're subject to U.S. court judgments. And 
related to that, there are constitutional concerns. There's a full faith and credit clause um, under the US Constitution, which essentially says that every court in the United States has to give full faith and credit to the judgment of another court in the United States. So what's the concern there? Well, what's going to happen is, let's say you're a New York resident and you set up a Delaware trust for your client and the client transfers um, $30 million of, of a liquid portfolio into there. What happens if there's a New York creditor uh, and a New York debtor, but all the assets are in a Delaware trust and there's a New York court judgment? Do we apply New York law? Let's say, you know, let's say the Delaware um, court is, let's say the Delaware statute is four years of statute, statute of limitations. New York is six years. Do we apply the six-year statute? Do we apply the four-year statute? Um, let's say Delaware ha has very few exception creditors, but New York has a lot of exception creditors. Jurisdiction, which law are we going to apply, New York or Delaware? And if New York renders a judgment in New York court that the assets can be taken out and unwound, can that be enforceable against the Delaware court? These are constitutional concerns. Um, we don't have clear guidance and clear cases on it yet, except for what I call the bad fact cases, where there were egregious fraudulent transfers that were made, but it is a concern for clients and they're not sure what to do there. Um, and there's a lack of clarity. So for if a client asks me, is this the most protective structure? The answer is it's protective. It may fit your situation, but I would not necessarily label this uh, as the most protective structure. By the way, one thing I wanted to point out is uh, what happens with real estate? Because this is a big question I get from a lot of my real estate clients. Can I put my real estate into a domestic asset protection structure? Say, you know, New York City real estate, I like to put it into a Delaware trust, a Nevada trust, Wyoming trust. Technically, you can do that. Uh, you know, it's generally real estate is held by an LLC. You can transfer the LLC, uh, even if it's a New York LLC, uh, and transfer it to a Wyoming trust. No problem. The issue becomes that, uh, you know, talking about U.S. CITES, is that when you have a New York CITES property, New York rules will apply and not Wyoming rules or Delaware rules or Nevada rules. So you, real estate is a bit more difficult to protect in a domestic asset protection trust. There are some ways, um, it's, it's, we don't have much time to discuss it now, there are ways to protect it, but it's very difficult to do it in your regular um, domestic asset protection structure. These foreign asset protection trusts and domestic asset protection trusts, they're more meant for liquid assets and intangible assets. Uh, so again, liquid portfolios, cash, investments, um, and even operating businesses, but, but not, not real estate. Okay, because of the limitations of the domestic asset protection trust, um, clients then look and ask regarding foreign asset protection trusts. So let's talk about some of the potential jurisdictions there. Um, you, you certainly, again, have a smorgasbord there as well. Um, there's the Bahamas, Belize, Bermuda, Cayman Islands, Cook Islands, um, the Netherlands. There, there's something called the Dutch Stack Foundation, uh, which is a complex structure. It is not something I recommend for a U.S. client. Um, that is more, I would call, for uh, a cross-border client or a client that has assets all across the world. Um, in fact, the Dutch Stack Foundation was used um, uh, for a Russian oil company and for, uh, to protect against 
uh, a Russian government lawsuit, and it actually worked um, uh, very well. And you can Google it, but uh, the Dutch Stack Foundation could be a potential uh, jurisdiction. Uh, Gibraltar, uh, Jersey, uh, the island, not 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 the state. Liechtenstein and Nevis. Um, these are all potential jurisdictions. Though the quick go-to's generally are the Cook Islands and Nevis, which base its um, asset protection laws on the Cook Islands as well. So, what are the considerations there when once we're going through a foreign asset um, protection trust jurisdiction? Uh, well, we look at civil law versus common law. Um, civil law, we here in the United States follow common law. Um, other states and, and jurisdictions are, Louisiana also follows civil law um, because they're a French colony. But generally, we, we, we're more comfortable with common law jurisdictions. Um, we get, go into more important uh, um, issues such as political stability of the country, economic stability, um, banking and investment, this is the number one concern of clients. Hey, I'm opening up a trust in the Cook Islands, in Nevis. Who's holding my cash? How can I trust the Cook Islands Bank? How do I um, uh, look to Nevis? You know, it's a tiny little island. How do I know my money's going to be safe? So, you know, to discuss it at more length, um, perhaps a different time, there are structures that need to be into, put into place where the money's safe. And it's not necessarily held in a, a Nevis or a Cook Islands bank. It could be held in a Swiss bank account, in a Liechtenstein uh, um, investment management account. There are ways to do that where the money is safe, but it's being under the jurisdiction of a Cook Islands or, or a Nevis um, uh, government. Um, flexibility with U.S. account openings. It is very, very difficult for U.S. individuals and U.S. citizens to open open accounts abroad. Um, so in setting up any type of uh, asset protection plan, you need time. There's, a, I would say, at least three to four, three to five months of planning time to get the structure in place with account openings and go through all the KYC and the due diligence. Um, tax environment, you obviously want in a zero tax state or zero tax jurisdiction. Standard of proof that's required. So some uh, in the United States, generally, um, there's a much more, there's a beyond, a reason, uh, there's a clear and convincing standard of evidence. Um, when you go to a foreign jurisdiction, you need a beyond a, reason, uh, a beyond a reasonable doubt to prove um, a fraudulent transfer. So obviously, the higher the level of standard of proof required for showing fraudulent transfer, the better. Uh, we get into more practical concerns, time zone and geographic distance. So say you're dealing with the Cook Islands, you got to be prepared in New York to, to understand that they're a day apart from the Cook Islands. And if you want a distribution made or if a beneficiary needs a distribution from a Cook Islands trust, it takes time. Um, another item to, of note is that there is a, um, you know, a lot of islands operate on island time. Uh, so it's not just the, the fact that they're in a different time zone, but they may not be as fast paced as you would want them to be. Uh, they have their own way of doing things and it could take longer than expected. Um, and add that, add a time zone difference to that, it could get things a bit more complex. Um, you know, just going back, you know, to the jurisdictions, you know, in terms of very protective laws, Belize has very protective laws. Um, the assets can be held outside of Belize, but 
I wouldn't necessarily, that's not my necessarily go-to um, for clients. You know, my, if you were to ask me, the Cook Islands are great. Um, Nevis is great. Uh, Bahamas um, is also a potential jurisdiction. It's nearby. We use them for Florida clients. They can just go, clients can just go, just go to the Bahamas if they need to sign anything. Um, you don't, clients can set all, you know, um, can set up these foreign asset protection trusts without having to go to the actual country. Everything can be done electronically, um, but still it's good to know that you can set something up in the Bahamas. You have a very safe um, uh, economic and, 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 and political environment, uh, but the asset protection laws may not be as protective as the Cook Islands or, or Nevis. So as I said, you really need to look at um, your client's needs and the degree and sensitivity of um, their situation to see whether or not a foreign asset protection trust makes sense. And again, taking these um, considerations into account. To really, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm going a few minutes over time, but um, to really uh, shore up and supercharge a foreign asset protection trust, the recommendation is to combine it with a private placement life insurance policy. Very quick background, private placement life insurance. Uh, essentially, it's an insurance policy for high net worth clients, you put in, let's say a minimum of $5 million in there. The $5 million, you can tell the insurance company or recommend to the insurance company general investments, you know, S&P 500, um, uh, certain types of companies or certain types of sectors. You can tell the insurance company what they can be, uh, you know, what you would like them to invest in or certain criteria. If that policy is designed properly, it provides tremendous um, uh, estate planning benefits because it's life insurance, um, income tax benefits. If the policy is designed correctly, there's no taxes associated with it. So it can generate a lot of income, a lot of capital gains, a lot of ordinary income, dividends, interest, and there's not going to be any sort of um, income taxation uh, associated with that. The way the client gets the money out uh, is by borrowing against the policy, which of course reduces the death benefit value if it's not paid back. But I'm, you know, giving this a very high-level overview of the PPLI uh, structure. But you know, it's certainly something that can be considered for clients. But in any event, when you have a PPLI that's owned by a foreign asset protection trust, well, you have a very robust structure. First of all, life insurance um, can be statutorily, statutorily protected. Um, two, if the life insurance is being purchased for legitimate estate planning purposes, this makes the creditor's argument that this was a fraudulent transfer. It makes that argument much weaker. Um, and it's much harder to pierce a life insurance wrapper um, than any other, than just say plain liquid portfolio. Uh, and as I said, there's estate and income tax benefits associated with, with it as well. Um, so I would highly recommend that again for the right type of clients to supercharge their asset protection now let's go through some quick limitations of foreign asset protection trusts well if it's designed properly the debtor is not should not be able to get assets back in their name um there's always a potential for contempt of court um if that happens so meaning the court was going to say this was a fraudulent transfer you need to repatriate all your assets from the cook islands the client's going to say, I gave up all control. I don't have any sort of access to this. Well, the judge is going to say, great, I will throw you into prison until you figure out how to get those assets back. 
and that has happened, there are cases like that. So you have to be careful. Um, you know, you should have an escape valve there for the assets to come back in case of emergency. Costs. A foreign national protection trust structure is not cheap, and if it's done properly, it's going to cost um, and, and, you know, a significant, what could be a significant amount. So that's something to be wary of. Concerns about offshore trustee. Obviously, you know, when clients are putting millions offshore, you want to pick the right trustee. And again, custody and access to assets, you don't want it in the U.S. So you can't have a U.S. custody bank having it. It has to be in a foreign bank, even though you could have it managed, let's say, by J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs in the United States. Custody of the assets can't be held by a U.S. Um, bank. Uh, some common features of both domestic asset protection trusts and foreign asset protection trusts, again, shorter statute of limitations to the set law the person who's funding trust can be a discretionary or HEMS, which means health, education, maintenance, or support beneficiary, which is a bit more limited. They can be a beneficiary of such a trust. Again, you would have to see if this is prudent. A spouse, if they don't have any credit or concerns, they can be a discretionary beneficiary. Um, estate, gift, and income taxes have to be fully vetted. You don't want to just go to somebody that's going to set up a trust. They have to be fully knowledgeable of the estate, gift, and income tax laws that are associated with this. There are reporting requirements for foreign trusts, um, both for the grantor as well as the U.S. beneficiaries. How do domestic asset protection is taxes, the grantor trust, non-grantor trust? Is it out of your estate, not out of your estate? That has to be fully vetted properly. Trust protectors. You know, all these trusts, both domestic and foreign, should have trust protectors in there, which are set. These are individuals that are given certain powers over the trust in order to maintain flexibility and trust for the future. And again, the most important point and the final point is the asset protection planning structure that you choose for your client is there to encourage settlement and to incentivize the resolution before legal costs, a spiral end of control, and the risks associated with the litigation um, um, uh, you know, proliferate and, and, and increase. Uh, so I know I've gotten a little bit over time. I tried to cover as much as I could on this, but thank you everybody for joining. And again, if you have any questions, feel free to email me. Thank you, Eli, for sharing your insights on selecting an asset protection plan. One big takeaway for me is how many different strategies there are to protect your assets. While there's no silver bullet, there are many options to consider. And if you do have serious asset protection concerns, it's important to get an expert involved to ensure that you are implementing the most sensible approach for your needs. And with that, it's a wrap for this, this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. Additionally, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on Apple or Spotify. It will help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show as well. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.